Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. To close out this year, we are delighted to welcome back an old friend, Jay Um. Jay is one of the most sought-after strategy executives in the legal industry. She is the founder and executive director of Six Parsecs, an insights firm for the legal vertical. In addition to strategic consulting for law firm leadership, Jay serves on advisory boards for emerging legal tech companies, including LegalMation, Daytona, and LexFusion. Jay got her start in big law here at Cyfarth, where she served in a progression of high-impact roles in client service innovation and strategic growth. She then went on to serve as Director of Pricing Strategy for Baker McKinsey Worldwide. She's a contributing author to Legal Evolution, American Lawyer, and other publications covering the legal industry. And in her spare time, has created a series called Lawyering at Scale on Luminate Plus. If you haven't read her stuff, you're missing out. Jay's work is consistently brilliant. Jay was one of our first guests on the podcast when we launched in 2021. We're thrilled to have her back for a fascinating conversation about her life on the road, the role of empathy in her consulting practice, the cultural commonalities of the most successful law firms, and how she sees the landscape for the profession unfolding in 2023. Enjoy the conversation. I'm joined today once again by Jay Elm, one of my dear friends and strategy consultant to the profession. Jay, thanks for making time. I know you're swamped with work these days. Oh, you're so welcome. It's always so fun to see you. I'm so happy to be here. Where in the world am I finding you? Home in Atlanta or are you on the road somewhere? I am actually home. I get to stay home for, I think, eight whole days. So that's the longest stretch I've been home in a couple of months, and I'm enjoying every minute of it. Eight whole days at home. Oh, my goodness. What are you going to do with yourself? Oh, I bought groceries. That's what I do now. That's a, that's like a cause for celebration when I'm home long enough where it's worth it to buy groceries. <laughs> How do you enjoy being a strategy consultant? We're going to talk a little bit later about sort of some themes that emerge, but it involves a lot of travel. It's a, it's a hard job. How do you like it? It is. You know better than anyone. This is what I always wanted to do. I uh, wanted to be a strategist since I was 19 years old because that's when I found out it was a thing. So I'm very grateful. You know, not everybody gets to do, you know, their dream job. Um, it is hard. It's hard work. The mechanics are hard. Logistics are hard. And then the, the work itself I'm finding is quite different than what I thought when I was younger. Obviously, you know, back then I thought it was about being smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, being being smart helps. It does. It does. But, you know, I think certainly the last 10 years I've learned, you know, intelligence, that actually is not in short supply in the world. I think uh, there's a lot of smart people. There's a lot of smart people uh, in big law and in the halls of the AMLA 100. You know, there's a lot of smart in, in strategy because it attracts smart people. But I think that I really enjoy the work because really strategy is is more about culture, I realized, and and leadership and about, you know, empathy and (laughs) understanding, you know, how people are feeling and being able to communicate with them in a way that they can understand that is meaningful to them, resonates with them, speaks to them about their reality and and kind of taps into what they hope for the future. And then so I, I think it's surprising. I really love the surprising bits, actually. 
Yeah, you know, that it, it's so interesting here you say that because over my years, I've worked with a number of consultants, all of whom will go unnamed. And the ones that sort of lack that empathy, that understanding tend not to do well because they are dealing with such smart people. And without building that relationship, you open yourself up to really smart people picking holes in whatever it is you're trying to articulate. And there are always holes in everything because this is more art than science. A hundred percent. And with the pace of change in the world, the pace of business, kind of how fast and furious everything is moving, you have to make decisions with incomplete information because if you wait you will be too late and the most important decisions will be made for you. And then so moving forward in that kind of pace of change and the volatility in the world, it requires so much trust building with your partners, with your people, with your customers, and your ability to kind of express that good intent and the commitment to shared success is so important more than ever, I think. And so I, you know, the adversarial dynamic does not work. No, it doesn't. You know, it's interesting. You talk about trust and building a trust relationship. I just came from the ACC meeting in Vegas and I was, don't laugh at me. (laughs) You know what I think about Vegas. That's why you're laughing. Yes, Yes, I know. But one of the tables, we did a presentation on a number of topics and one of which was essentially pricing and stuff. And I was sitting and listening to discussion around one of the tables in the in-house council. We're talking about that trust I was asking them why why has an alternative pricing advanced at a more rapid pace than I certainly would have thought 15 years ago. And trust was a big component of it. And finding the time to build that trust relationship is not the easiest thing in the world. And it degenerates into a vendor-vendee relationship, which is not always the best for creative solutions that don't always produce clear winners and losers. 100%. I think You know, the erosion of trust between inside and outside counsel, I think, is something that has done great harm to the business and the profession, frankly. I think it has made life quite miserable for outside counsel. It's really difficult to to function, you know, as an advisor to, you know, people who are not in your organization when there is not that strong foundation of trust. And certainly with all of the pressure on legal that is just going up, by the way, very soon, and it's rising now. And it's going to be worse next year. These kind of downturns, you know, it's a time of great pressure for outside counsel. And it it is hard to build trust. I think the pandemic has, you know, made that even more challenging. One thing I learned, like in my bones, when I was at Baker's is that it is it is harder to trust people who are far away. It is harder to trust people that you don't see every day at the office. And that takes more work. It takes more effort. It takes more resilience, actually, to tell yourself positive stories when people are far away you don't see them and you know you have to fill in the pieces because our brains love stories our brains do not like ambiguity and uncertainty is stressful and then so i think in times of stress you know we fill in the blanks with all kinds of bad stories and i think plenty of that happened during the pandemic and there's lots of things that have strained that inside outside relationship but to me you know Often people make the mistake of thinking that there's some kind of magic in the model, whether it's the business model or the service model or the pricing model, when really it does come down to fundamentals, like a bad model with good fundamentals, I think will do better than a good model with bad execution, bad relationships. You know, so I think that often we talk about the pricing exercise as though we lack expertise. 
our skills when really we don't have the emotional kind of uh, backdrop that we need to have those conversations about value exchange and changing the paradigm of how lots of people make money. And often these are, you know, huge, huge relationships that where the people negotiating at the table or not, it's not, they're not playing with their money. They're often representing huge networks of peers that they have to answer to. And so there's a ton of pressure. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of strain and the new voices too, right? Um, new people who have kind of entered the situation as maybe intermediaries would be a positive word. I think there are less positive yeah. words for, for... Yes, there are. Yeah. But that has put distance between in the lawyer to lawyer relationship. And while I obviously believe it's so important to have commercial expertise injected into how we structure these large institutional relationships, the enterprise managing the enterprise to enterprise relationship and the human lawyer to lawyer relationships within that context has, I think, challenged the industry. Yeah, I think it has. I'm, I'm curious in your in your consulting practice and your strategy practice, does this theme of trust, this breakdown of relationships, and need, how does that work into your consulting practice if it does? Hundred percent, hundred percent, it does. So, um, you know, one of the things that didn't make it into the article because the article was already quite long. But the the piece I wrote for the American Lawyer last year on the power rankings, you know, when I think about what sets apart the highest performing firms and not just, you know, this year or last year, but the highest performing firms that have sustained an upward trajectory over, over an entire business cycle. To me, I look at the cultural commonalities and one of them is confidence, commercial confidence, courage in how they make decisions. And then the second is being curious curious about what's happening in the world, what's happening to clients, where are they going, where are the opportunities for them? And then the third is trust, trust within the partnership, trust with their people, this commitment to um, deliver on the value proposition for talent and clients and, and maintaining that foundation of trust within the partnership. So I, I think trust is a huge factor in strategy. In terms of you know how, how that extends to the strategy work, it, it depends on the context because Maester's uh, model is, is old, but just because it's old doesn't mean it's not useful. It was a pretty good model. It is. And it describes the business very well. It is a two-sided platform. You need trust with talent and you need trust with clients, and then you need trust within the, the uh, partnerships. So I think trust is everywhere. And without that, I, I think there is no business. As a general proposition, I don't want to talk about any specific gig that you've worked on, but that's not the easiest message, just speaking from my own experience, for executive committees or partnerships to hear. They may understand it's the right message, but they, they want to, oh, let's just do this. Let's just get rid of this unit or go bring some laterals in here. They want clean fixes. And building trust is not a clean, it's not a switch you turn. It's a process. How do you create the patience among people to listen to and embrace and really have a meaningful conversation around these really difficult concepts? Well, you know, Steve, uh, it's funny you ask that because I, I often think of something you used to say, which is that nothing is ever as good as it seems and nothing is ever as bad as it seems. And that kind of uh, patience, deliberation, the willingness to, you know, see all sides of a situation and to have conversations. I think that is actually one of the 
biggest challenges facing law firm leaders today. Because if you look at the trajectory of uh, what managing partners have been asked to do the last 20, 30 years is, is to grow the firm. That has been the prevailing kind of mantra for most firms. And then as firms get bigger, this tax that you pay to uh, build and maintain trust is really conversations, right? It's having hard conversations. So it's time, it's emotional labor, it's attention. And then there are diseconomies of scale, right? Because as you get bigger, it becomes harder and harder to have one-on-one conversations. There's, uh, you know, more distance grows between kind of the management layer of the firm and, and partners on the line. We're working very hard serving clients. It's harder and harder and harder to kind of hear the voice of the partners, to, you know, sense the mood of the partnership. And then so I think law firm leaders are, you know, very challenged in the exercise of building trust because uh, I think it was Amazon that said uh, trust is earned in drips and lost in buckets. And that's why I always think of what you used to say, because I think that it is a bad idea for law firms to make drastic, rash decisions. It's, it's not a model that's built for that. It's built for durability. And the Latin market has already done great violence, I think, to the culture of firms. Yeah, it has. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think it's tough all around. Absolutely. So speaking of tough all around, as we move into a new year where we've got uncertain economic circumstances, how are you seeing the landscape unfolding before the profession? And uh, what are the challenges that are going to be facing law firms as they navigate that landscape? Well, I can't lie. I think it's going to be a tough one. I think the the macroeconomics are very challenging. I think the the level of anxiety in the industry is going to strain a lot of uh, partner meetings coming up. And that that is just the hard truth. Of course, the situation looks different based on where you're sitting. I think I think actually clients are feeling the heat quite a bit. Uh, the the stock market volatility and just the general kind of economic uncertainty has put a lot of pressure on budgets. And then client anxiety is, is driving a lot of law firm anxiety. And I think that people tend to have short memories. And then so I'm just going to stretch out the narrative a little bit. Uh, last year was an extraordinary year. It was a, an anomalous year of both growth and in, in, in headcount. A lot of firms added headcount, but also reset the associate comp scale, which I, I think was long overdue. But it was very, it was a too fast, too furious kind of year. And then so, um, you know, it was bound to kind of uh, correct anyway. And then I think we probably deferred this downturn because of, of all the post-COVID measures. And then so I, I think that, you know, it was a steep trajectory upward. I think firms are going to have a hard pull to come in flat. Just to hold flat, I think it's going to be really rough. And, you know, I, I, I said last year, a lot of people talked and acted like uh, the AMLA 100, like won the lottery or something. And I went around telling everybody they worked really hard for those results. I mean, I think if you think about the, the associates, the mid-levels, the seniors that, you know, tend to kind of um, take the brunt of the, the workload. I mean, they worked crazy hours. I think a lot of firms did 16 to 18 months of work and 12. People are exhausted. So it's it's not great kind of environmentals anyway. And then the economic pressures are, are, are turning up. So I think it's going to be a rough one. I mean, for a handful of firms, it's all it's all fine. But the firms, like I said, the firms that grow too fast, which I, I have always thought was, you know, a big risk. 
I think they're going to have a hard time kind of ingesting the payroll and the added expense load. And then so I think, yeah, a lot of tough conversations happening shortly, actually. it's We're almost heading into November. If you go back now to the 08 Great Recession, that had an impact on law firms. They were slow to react, I think, in many respects. Then they reacted and then they were slow to rebuild. Then you come into the pandemic where law firms sort of immediately turn virtual on a dime and reduce staff and then, then can't get people up. What lessons do law firms draw from that history that's applicable to this next set of downturns? Yeah, a couple of things. I think one thing that law firms really, really was a huge miss after the Great Recession is they pruned the wrong part of the, the pyramid. I think they overpruned the associate ranks. I think lots of firms paid for that for the next decade because it, it kind of broke the chain. It was a lost generation, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It broke the chain. I think it trained a lot of junior partners to work in maybe ways that are not so great. Did not actually, not just the lost generation of associates, but the, the partners that did not get, I think, a good enough experience delegating, managing, developing talent. And then I I think this kind of bloat of junior partners who become kind of uh, service partners, not not because that's what they love doing, not because they love practicing and serving clients, but because they lack the skills and the muscles to lead teams because they did not get enough practice, maybe in the other aspects of the old equity track. I think it really disrupted the old model of, of expectation and the social compacts that you know, kind of held the firm together for a long time. But from an economic standpoint, I think essentially firms messed up their leverage for about eight to 12 years because they did not right the ship. They did not rebalance the size and shape of the workforce. That I I saw a lot of law firms learn. I think law firms did that piece better during COVID and right after. But actually, that I think that question is still open because I'm very interested to see what firms are going to do with excess capacity in the next year. I think you're going to see a bifurcation. I think you're going to see a lot of firms hang on to the talent they want to develop and grow into the partner ranks. It's been hard to attract that talent over the last few years, hasn't it? It's got to be reluctant to let go of it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So I think the firms that you know are really intentional about who they keep, the firms that are able to actually retain the talent they want. I mean, they're going to have a durable advantage. I think it's it's generational, right? You know, I'm not one of these people who freaks out every time any firm lets people go. I mean, it is a going concern. <laughs> and so, you know, excess capacity and carrying a lot of inventory, I mean, that that kills your financials. So I think, um, especially with client buying behaviors being what they are in recent memory, I think firms have to be able to at least consider pulling those levers, the financial levers to survive and to give themselves the resources to compete. That said, I think it's not whether or not you, you know, let people go or, or understand that the time when a person spends their entire career with one firm, I mean, the sun is set on that age, right? I think it's how you part ways with your people. I think there is a uh, considerate, dignified way to go about that. And that I think there is not so great ways to do that. And yeah, I think even though the demand trend and maybe like the bargaining power of labor has shifted 
a bit just in the last few months. That's not going to undo, you know, the importance of talent. And this generation, I mean, now folks my age are, are entering the partner ranks and I'm looking at the associates who are coming up. I do think their expectations are different. I think that they want different things from their workplace. They expect different things from their workplace now. They want different kinds of promises uh, for their future. They want to see different kinds of investment. So the firms that are really attuned to that, I think, are going to have an advantage. Yeah, there's an interesting balance, you know, having been on the management side during a couple of recessions. There's an interesting balance between hanging on to your talent and investing for the long term, or at least the medium term, because that's what you need to do, and the short-term impact on financials and how that's perceived by your partners, how it's perceived by the marketplace. And every firm has to strike that balance differently, don't they? Because it's inherent to their culture, but it's a, it's a key discussion you have to have. Oh, 100%. I think it goes back to the earlier discussion on trust, because if you have that basis of trust with your partners, if you have the communication channels open, you can discuss these matters no matter how difficult they are. I mean, it it is something that you have to consider and, and be able to address. And that's what actually makes you resilient in a downturn, resilient in, in times of stress is the ability to contemplate the challenges of reality and to find a way forward. So I think, yeah, and I understand the pressures, but hard things are hard. Hard things are hard. That's right. Absolutely. So you mentioned a little bit ago about your article in The American Lawyer, and it got long. It has the most fascinating analogy to English soccer structure, Premier League, Championship League, something which really resonated with me. It was just sort of the perfect overlay to the things. How on earth did that occur to you to, to apply that structure to AMLAW results? Well, I think my first answer is going to disappoint you because it's not that clever, but it's Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> not disappointing at all. <laughs> I love the show. I binge watched it in Paris, actually. I, I did a digital nomad stint in Paris for a couple months and then a friend like forced me to watch a couple episodes and that was hooked. It was so good. Um, and then, yeah, I w- have never really been that knowledgeable about soccer, <laughs> but the show interested me and the, the friend who was watching it with me, he's a big soccer fan. And then so I learned more about how it works. And I loved it immediately. And then and then this is the part you're waiting for. Um, yeah, no, my mind went immediately, immediately to uh, using it. Like I was determined to build the model, the analytical model. And it took some doing, but I was very pleased with it. It, it actually was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. But the reason for it is that the relegation and promotion mechanics, what it actually does to the fandom to the sport and, and kind of all the economics of, of the spectatorship is that the promotion and relegation mechanics draw and hold audience attention to a broader swath of the market. Like that's what really attracted me to the model because, and you remember how often I would get annoyed by the way that people interact with data. No, I don't remember that at all, Jay. <laughs> um, <laughs> So certainly, you know, I think the ALM team does great work. We would not have the kind of understanding of the market that we do without their work. But I think over time, what the AMLA rankings have done is is focus firms' attention on the wrong part of the market at the very top, at the very top. And often, 
you know, drawing attention to maybe not the best metrics. And really, actually, the ALM team writes great analysis in that issue every year. But somehow the things that get tweeted, the things that get forwarded, the things that get talked about are not the things that are relevant to most firms. (laughs) And so my first hope was to, you know, draw attention to like a, a, a more nuanced, more coherent, cohesive view of what's actually happening in the market. And I think you'll remember this too, like people have a difficult time remembering things that happened like two years ago. And so this kind of year to year to year, just this year, or last year, how do we do compared to last year? And, you know, with all the work you and I did together at Cypher, I've always had the commitment to, you, know, you have to look further back. And that's the only way you can look further forward, right? If you can't look further back, you can't look further forward. Like you, you have to help people see the bigger picture. And then, so that is why the model included, it was a very complicated model. Yeah, it appeared to be very complicated from just looking at the article, yes. So it was a whole composite score of many metrics that I consider to be important, a couple that I thought were important to the zeitgeist of the year. But every metric on two-year, five-year, and 10-year timeframes. And so I think that is actually what helped me see some patterns. Um, and that's how I know a model is useful. If, it, if I noticed things that I would have missed otherwise. So I was really, really happy with it. But yeah, the short-termism and I think kind of myopic focus on, on one spot in the market, I think that is what I wanted to address. And I think I got a lot of calls about it. So I, I guess folks looked at the rankings, uh, even if they didn't read the article. There was a lot of things I thought was interesting about it. But one of them was this focus on the wrong thing that most law firms have. You've got firms at the very top, you know, a Kirkland and a Latham, and firms in the second 50 are not going to be a Kirkland. They're not going to be a Latham, but they're earning in the abstract a lot of money for the partners. Nobody's having bake sales for partners in the AMLAW 100. And it gave you a context to sort of say to yourself, how are we performing vis-a-vis our like firms in the broader market? without having to feel bad that, oh, we don't earn what Kirkland partners earn. No, you don't. You don't. And you're not going to. And to those partners, I would say, and you don't work like the Kirkland partners do. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I I think um, I wish people would take away different things looking at Kirkland and leave them. It's not that I think it's devoid of interest. It's actually of, of uh, there are multiple points of interest in what Kirkland and Latham are doing. And none of it really has to do with just the size alone or the pace. I think the most interesting thing that is happening at Kirkland and Latham is something that has never been done before, which is the industrialization of very, very high end work. And that is a, you know, I think, drastic future orientation that, you know, the market's been trained not to expect from the business and the profession of law. And then so for those reasons, you know, I think I think it's worth watching. But when people look at Kirkland and Latham and what they take away is we need to get bigger, that is, I think, cause for great concern. I would agree with you. I know we're running out of time, but one last topic. You've got a new section. I, I don't know how to describe it for an outfit called Luminate Plus, calling Lawyering at Scale. What is it and what is your topic on? Tell us a little bit about this venture. 
Yeah, so Luminate Plus, I hope everybody checks it out. I think it's a really, really, really important project. Andrew Dick, who is the founder, I think, found a really unserved, underserved need, which is CLE. I mean, CLE is uh, not modern. And we talk about modern lawyering. We talk about training uh, practice-ready first years. I worry more about the, the learning and development that needs to happen over their entire careers. I mean, the world moves so fast, they have to be able to learn new things forever for as long as they're working. And I don't think that we are equipping lawyers with modern tools to drive that learning and development. So Illuminate Plus is a brand new streaming platform for CLE approved content. Andrew has somehow... I mean, I think he's just like a wizard. I can't believe the lineup of people he has put together. It's incredible, isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I think I am famously a non-lawyer, so I don't have CLE responsibilities. But if I did, I sure would be on this platform because the production values are great. The expertise that is already on the platform at launch is just astounding and just on a, such a you know, wide array of topics. I've never seen this star-studded roster of GCs. Like, I've never seen such a list in one place. And, you know, we talk about the voice of the client and we do not actually give access to most lawyers to hear from the in-house counsel at that level. And then so the, just the ability to hear what they're thinking, how they think about, you know, a variety of issues, I think is super important. My show is one of the more humble ones. <laughs> um, Lawyering at scale. Lawyering at scale. And, um, you know, I think I, I've spent most of my career with management, with law firm management on business of law issues. And, and um, you know, the last few years, I've thought more and more about what is happening to the world. We are in a very precarious kind of scary feeling place. I mean, science and technology are getting away from us in many ways. And the regulatory framework, I think, is deteriorating. And so, you know, I've come around to this conviction, although I've always been a, a great ally of, and defender of lawyers, but I, I think lawyers are more important than ever. If humanity is to survive the fourth industrial revolution, we need really, really good lawyers. And then so I worry about the, the training and learning and development of young lawyers. And then so I've taken an interest more and more about how do we prepare lawyers to practice differently in a world that is, is fundamentally changing. So lawyering at scale is really about um, when we have exponential risk, when we have systemic risk, when we have risk that scales, you need to have risk mitigation. You need to have legal judgment that applies to those contexts. And then so, you know, it's not actually about what I know. I just uh, asked, you know, some of the most impressive people I know doing, you know, different things in different corners of the industry to come by and talk about their work. And I had such a blast. Well, it looks like it's going to be a fabulous uh, product. I know we're looking at it and you've got some great people you've talked to. So it had to be a, a great learning experience for you as well. Oh, 100%. I had so much fun. You know, I was hesitant when Susan Hackett so kindly connected me to Andrew. She she thought I would be a, a fun addition. And, you know, I had no idea. Like, I, I don't want to be on video. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's so stressful. Um, and then the product just looks so great. It's, it is really a pleasure to watch. And the um, guests that came by, 
on my show are some of the most impressive people I know. And, you know, just such uh, diverse perspectives um, from academia. We had Nicole Morris on from Emory. She runs that fascinating program, the, the Tiger, the commercialization program where the law students work with scientists to really bring new stuff to market. We had David Wang from Wilson Sonsini, who's doing some amazing stuff. They've gotten a lot of recognition lately, but uh, very hard earned, very well deserved. And, you know, I think I sat down with um, Ben Algrove, Chief Innovation Officer at Baker McKenzie, and there really is no better vantage point from a global perspective. He sees everything everywhere. And it's just so fascinating. I encourage people to check it out. As with everything you touch, it'll be great. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's always such a pleasure to spend time with you. It is indeed for me as well. Thanks for your time, Jay, and enjoy your eight days at home. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.